Verse 28, Some eight days after these sayings, He took along Peter and John and James, and He went up on a mountain to pray. Mark chapter 9, verse 2 tells us it was a high mountain. Not just one of the mountains. You can stand there in the, uh, on, on one of the mountains around the valley of Megiddo. And there are several. Mount Carmel, and there's Mount Megiddo, and Mount Gilboa. You can stand on one of those and look out at the other mountains, and, and you'd be surprised. They're not very big. For us Washingtonians, they look more like hills than mountains. But there's one mountain in Israel that is a high mountain that does look somewhat like a Rainier, and that's Mount Hermon. And Mount Hermon is up in the north of Israel. Mount Hermon is 9,232 feet above sea level. It is the high mountain in Israel. Mount Hermon is in the north. Well, they were just in Caesarea Philippi in the north. And so what probably happened is from Caesarea Philippi, they wandered around Banyas and around the the beautiful northern region of Israel for a while and then made their way up Mount Hermon. That's where I believe Jesus took Peter, James, and John as he went up the high mountain to pray. Verse 29, And while he was praying, the appearance of his face became different. And his clothing became white and gleaming. The word gleam, his, his clothes were white and flashing like lightning. You know when you see lightning on a clear night and, and it almost blinds you? That's how bright Jesus' clothing was in that moment. And behold, two men were talking with him, and they were Moses and Elijah. And I think it's remarkable that the apostles recognized <laughs> Moses and Elijah. They'd never seen him before, but they knew exactly who they were who appearing in glory were speaking of His departure, which He was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. Peter, James, and John are there. They look up. Jesus is now... Well, He transcends. Number five, Jesus transcends His physical body. In an amazing moment, suddenly they see Him as He is. They see Him in all of His glory. They see Him gleaming, flashing like lightning. Peter, James, and John... Now John would later write in John 1.14, We saw His glory. Glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. John wrote that before he saw the revelation. So he's looking back and he's thinking about the transfiguration of Jesus when Jesus literally transcended His physical body. But you know... John would also live to see the revelation of Jesus returning in His glory. In Revelation 19, what John sees there and describes is Jesus in His second coming. He sees the kingdom. The kingdom come. And so when Jesus says back there in verse 27, some will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God, it's either Peter, James, and John on the mountain, or it's John in the Revelation. And personally, I think it's both. He's referring to those who would have a glimpse of the kingdom. A sneak preview. Pastor David Guzik says, this was not a new miracle. It was the temporary pause of an ongoing miracle. You see, the real miracle was that Jesus could keep from displaying His glory. That's an interesting way to look at it. That it's kind of the opposite. That throughout Jesus' life and ministry, there was the subduing of His glory, or the emptying Himself of His glory. Which was His natural, is His natural state. But in the transfiguration, Peter, James, and John see Him as He is. Why now? Why at this moment in the ministry? And I think the answer is very simply encouragement. Three ways. 
encouragement for Peter and the boys. Peter, James, and John are fresh off the depressing news that Jesus expected to die. And they're struggling with this. In fact, one of the other Gospel writers tells us that, that Peter, after the confession, and Jesus says, I'm going to die, Peter says, no, Lord, uh-uh, we're not going to let that happen. And Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. Don't get in between me and the plans of God. And so they're working this out, and they're thinking, two and a half years of our lives with Jesus, and it's been so good, and now He's talking about dying? How does that work? And Jesus immediately takes them up the mountain and shows them who He is. Well, that's encouraging. Okay, okay, so maybe there is more to this than meets the eye. Encouraging for Peter, James, and John. Encouraging for Jesus Himself. Meeting there with Moses and Elijah. And as Jesus met with them, it's interesting, Luke is the only Gospel writer who tells us what the conversation was. He says specifically, they were speaking of His departure. Moses and Elijah and Jesus on the mount are talking about His departure that was imminent when He went to Jerusalem. They're talking about the crucifixion. They're talking about His resurrection. That is the conversation Moses, Elijah, and Jesus are having together. It must have been encouraging for Jesus. And I also think that it must have been encouraging for the two prophets, Moses and Elijah. For a couple of reasons. One thing is that after his death, they would be with him instantaneously. If you want to really blow your mind, read Ephesians chapter 4, verses 8 through 10, that talks about Jesus descending and leading a captivity captive. Those who are waiting for the redemption of the cross. Jesus goes down, grabs them all, and they head home, and Moses and Elijah would be part of that deal. That's encouraging. I wonder. It's totally Rick wondering. Okay, so we're not we're not going to step outside of literal Bible study, and we're going to go into the world of surmise. I wonder if part of the encouragement for Moses and Elijah was Jesus saying, "Hey, when you guys are killed, it's going to be all right. You'll be resurrected too." And yes, I am very much of the camp who believes that the two witnesses of Revelation chapter eleven are Moses and Elijah. And I can give you all kinds of reason for believing that. For those of you of the Enoch camp, the the Enochers, I like to refer to you, it's Enoch and Elijah. It has to be Enoch and Elijah because, because they're the only two who did not die. Right? Let me ask you a question. Will there ever be a person other than Enoch and Elijah who will go into eternity without dying? Yes, there will. Death is not a requirement for eternity. Jesus in John 11.25 said, I am the resurrection and the life, and he who believes in me will live even if he dies. So give me your life. Come to me in faith. Let's walk in relationship. And if you die, no biggie. You're going to live with me again. Wonderful. But Jesus also said, everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. Well, who's he talking about? There's only one group that that could possibly mean. It's the raptured church. It's those who are alive at the time that Jesus calls us out. And gang, that small group of people in history will never die. And I've already signed up. I don't know about you guys, but uh, I am looking forward to that. I pray for that. And yet, 
for those who die before Jesus raptures the church, before He catches the church up. 1 Thessalonians 4, 16-18. Well, that's kind of cool too because they get to go first. And then we join them and meet Jesus in the air and so we shall forever be with the Lord. Well, there's all kind of encouragement going around as Jesus transcends His body. Verse, where are we? 33, 32. Uh, now Peter and his companions have been overcome with sleep. Some think because they were blown away by the vision, they just <laughs> go down. But when they were fully awake, they saw His glory and the two men standing with Him. And as these were leaving, or the word literally is they, talking about Moses and Elijah, as Moses and Elijah were leaving, Peter said to Jesus, Master! It's good for us to be here. Let's make three tabernacles. One for you, and one for Moses, and one for Elijah. And Luke adds, not realizing what he was saying. <laughs> Luke was right. Peter was blurting again. He wasn't thinking. He was just talking. And what he does in that moment is he blurts out two major errors among people of faith. Error number one, religion. Let's build worship centers for Jesus and Moses and Elijah. Let's honor, laud, and worship and praise Jesus and the saints. And God has a very definite opinion about that. Verse 34. While he was saying this, a cloud formed and began to overshadow them, and they were afraid as they entered the cloud. And then a voice came out of the cloud. So get the picture. Understand what just happened. Peter, James, and John are standing there. Peter goes, hey, hey, tabernacles all around. And all of a sudden, this cloud surrounds them. And we're told the voice comes out of the cloud, which means booming all around them comes the voice of God. This is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. Okay. And when the voice had spoken, Jesus was found alone. As He should be. Jesus alone. It is not Jesus, Joseph, and Mary. It is not Jesus and the saints. It is not Jesus and Elijah and Jesus and Moses. It is Jesus alone. And only Jesus. And our worship is not to any other but Jesus alone. Error number two. See, that's religion. Religion is worship beyond Jesus. Religion is adding things to the worship of Jesus, be it the saints, or be it activity, or be it different things that we have to do. That's religion. Relationship is Jesus alone. Error number two. Rushing the kingdom. Rushing the kingdom. Peter wanted to build three tabernacles, three sukkahs. In the Hebrew. Why? Because that's what you do when the kingdom comes. You build tabernacles. You build sukkahs. Where are you getting that? Zechariah 14.16 It will come about that any who are left of all the nations that went against Jerusalem will go up from year to year to worship the King, the Lord of hosts, and to celebrate the Feast of Tabernacles. Sukkot. The Feast of Tabernacles to the Jewish people is the Feast of the Kingdom. That's the one that signifies the kingdom has come. And so some think, and I think it's probably right on, that Peter, understanding Jesus as the king, seeing Him in this moment of glory, said, it's kingdom time! 
It's Feast of Tabernacles. Let's build tabernacles, Lord. One for you, and of course, Moses and Elijah. Let's just build tabernacles for everybody. And in fact, Peter confirmed later what he was seeing. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 17, Peter said, When Jesus received honor and glory from God the Father, such an utterance as this was made to Him by the majestic glory, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. And we ourselves heard this utterance made from heaven when we were with Him on the holy mountain. So Peter sees the king, assumes the kingdom is here, and says it's tabernacle time. Was he wrong? Listen, here's the error. Peter was right in theology. He was just wrong on timing. Yes, Sukkot will be celebrated. Yes, there will be tabernacles raised annually in Jerusalem in celebration in the Millennial Kingdom. Absolutely right, but you don't rush the Kingdom. You don't rush the Kingdom. You almost hear Peter saying, Jesus, you must have been wrong about the sorrow and the rejection and the suffering. Uh, you must have missed that. Let's, let's just bypass all that. This is good. This, let's do this. Let's do the glory. But let's bypass the suffering. And that is one of the top three temptations in the devil's playbook. Bypass the hardship. Go straight for the glory. Don't rush the kingdom. Well, then what do we do? We prepare for it. And in some of our lives, that preparation is going to be hard. That preparation is going to bring sorrow. That preparation is going to yield rejection. That preparation is going to mean that we have to deny ourselves and take up our cross and follow the path that Jesus walked. The preparation for the kingdom. Don't rush it. God knows what He's doing. He will bring it in due time. Well, the cloud lifted and there He was. Jesus alone. And they kept silent. And they reported to no one in those days any of the things which they had seen. And on the next day, when they came down from the mountain, a large crowd met him. And a man from the crowd shouted, saying, Teacher, I beg you to look at my son, for he is my only, literally, begotten. And the Spirit seizes him. And he suddenly screams, and it throws him into a convulsion with foaming at the mouth, And only with difficulty does it leave him mauling him as he leaves. I begged your disciples to cast it out, but they could not. So we leave the mountain with the father and son, and we come immediately to another father and son. And Jesus, number six here, Jesus contends with a lack of faith. Jesus contends with a lack of faith. Why couldn't the apostles... That is, the the nine that didn't go up the mountain with Jesus, why couldn't they cast out this demon? See, the, the thing that's amazing is that Jesus had given them the power to cast out demons. They had been given the gift, given the power to do it, but now they couldn't. Was the gift temporary? I don't think so. The Bible tells us, Romans 11.29, the gifts and callings of God are irrevocable which seems to imply to me that God doesn't give gifts and then take them back. If you've been gifted in some way, if you have a spiritual gift in your life that the Lord has laid on your heart, guess what? That's yours. That's yours forever. It's a gift. It has been given to you. 
Well, then why can't the apostles cast out the demon? And as a matter of fact, why can't I exercise that gift that I once had? Because the gifts of God are exercised by faith. Gift doesn't go away, but faith goes away sometimes, doesn't it? The ability to function in the way God created and called me and anointed me to function sometimes waffles and wavers because my faith waffles and wavers. Think about what Paul said to Timothy, 2 Timothy 1.6. I remind you to kindle afresh or to stir up the gift of God which is in you through the laying on of hands. The gift's there, Timothy. It was given to you when we laid hands on you. Stir it up, man. Stir it up by faith. And that's why I believe Jesus told them, according to Matthew, Matthew 17.21, this kind, literally of demon, this kind does not go out except by prayer and fasting. You have the gift of casting out demons. That's not the issue. The gift is not the problem. The problem is the faith. So you need to go pray and fast and stir up the faith. And that will stir up the gift. But that's not Luke's main focus here. He points out something else that's pretty stunning. And that is that with this story, Jesus applies the healing of this boy to himself. Watch this. Jesus answered and said, verse 41, You unbelieving and perverted generation, how long shall I be with you and put up with you? Hayden thought that, my son Hayden, thought that was hilarious that Jesus said that. We were talking last night, and he goes, Does Jesus ever get tired of us? And I go, Yeah. Yeah. How long am I going to have to put up with you people? And he says, Bring your son here. While he was still approaching, the demon slammed him to the ground and threw him into a convulsion. But Jesus rebuked the unclean spirit and healed the boy and gave him back to his father. And they were all amazed at the greatness of God. But while everyone was marveling at all that he was doing, he said to his disciples, okay, preparation continues here, and aside to the disciples, Jesus says, let these words sink into your ears. For the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men. You get it? The apostles didn't. They they didn't understand. They did not understand this statement, verse 45, and it was concealed from them so they would not perceive it, but they were afraid to ask Him about this statement. Listen to the statement again. Jesus casts the demon out of this boy, gives the boy back to his father, turns to the disciples and says, let these words sink into your ears. The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men. In other words, number seven, Jesus will descend into darkness. Just like this boy. I'm the son, Jesus says. I'm the son who's going to be handed over to the enemy. I'm the son who's going to be mauled by the demons. I'm the son who will face the fiery judgment of the cross. The other gospel writers tell us this demon inside this boy tried to throw him into the fire, tried to throw him into the water. Well, Jesus says, I'm going to go through the fire of the cross. I'm going to drown in the pit. Prior to being taken to the cross, I'm the Son. Let it sink in, he says. And the apostles are like, Do you understand, Peter? I'm not asking. Last time I asked, he called me Satan, so I'm not going to say anything. 
my friends, the cross, the cross, the cross is the standard for the disciple. And that's why from this point on, Jesus keeps taking him back to the cross over and over. He will do it. He reminds them of where he's headed and he reminds them of what following him would mean in their lives. Let it sink in. The cross. Because as we said on Sunday, Colossians 2.15, by the cross, He disarmed the rulers and authorities. He made a public display of them, having triumphed over them through Him. The very sin that gives place to demonic activity is wiped out by the precious blood of Jesus on the cross. And so Jesus says, I'm the Son. But the twelve didn't get it. So, number eight in your notes, Jesus upends wrong thinking. Verse 46, an argument started among them as to which of them might be the greatest. (laughs) We never talk about stuff like that. But Jesus, knowing what they were thinking in their heart, took a child and stood him by his side and said to them, Whoever receives this child in my name receives me. And whoever receives me receives him who sent me. For the one who is least among all of you, this is the one who is great. Who's the example in Jesus' picture of humility? Not a child. The child is just a picture of Jesus Himself. Jesus is the example. He pulls in the child and says, whoever receives this child, in My name receives Me. In other words, the same childlike humility that was seen in that little one that Jesus pulls in, that's the humility of Christ. Jesus has a childlike humility about Him. And you see it throughout His ministry, and it's absolutely stunning with the power and the anointing and and the, the awesomeness of who Jesus is. Even as we just saw in the Transfiguration, an amazing, incredible, wonderful God in the flesh, and yet He doesn't trumpet that. And to be like Jesus means that we don't trumpet our accomplishments either talking with my buddy Ray today and he said he said Rick you know taking compliments when you are a preacher Ray preaches all over the place he says whenever someone comes up to me and says man that really touched me or, or great job or I really appreciated what you were saying Ray says a friend of mine once said receive it like you would receive a flower thank you thanks and then someone else makes a nice comment and you receive that like you would receive a flower. And each one you receive until you have a bouquet and then you take the bouquet and you give it to the Lord and say, thank you for what you've done. See, that's Jesus. Jesus with the humility of a child. He flips around the kind of thinking. We think God in the flesh is going to be an awesome stud. And He was, but He didn't trumpet it. He just, he just loved. He was humble. He was meek. He was mild. Verse 49. John answered and said, Master, we saw someone casting out demons in your name and we tried to prevent him because he does not follow us. He doesn't go to our church. (laughs) Jesus said to him, Do not hinder him, for he who is not against you is for you. John obviously confused the whole in my name thing. He thought if they're not with us, then they're against us. And we do the same thing. Someone says, I go to Christ's church on the river. 
Someone else say, well, I go to First Christ Church on the river. <laughs> you know what you don't often hear? You don't often hear things like Third Christ Church on the river once removed on our mother's side. Yeah, I haven't seen that. <laughs> I haven't seen that church. <laughs> what is the standard of fellowship among churches? I think about this a lot. And that's the answer. Jesus. Jesus, the Lordship of Jesus Christ, that's the standard of fellowship. You come to me and say, Jesus Christ is my Lord and Savior, you're my brother, you're my sister. You come to me denying Christ or saying Christ is less than anything other than Lord and God, that's where I have trouble walking in fellowship. I would add one more thing into that secondarily, and that's adherence to the Word of God. For someone who claims the Lordship of Jesus Christ but says, eh, 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 eh. i got to wonder. doesn't mean that I'm you know, into cutting people off. i just got to wonder. Turn real quickly in your Bibles over to Philippians chapter 1, uh, verse 15. Philippians 1, 15. Listen to Paul's attitude about the other churches, the other preachers, the others who are speaking in the name of Jesus. He says, Philippians chapter 1, verse 15, Some, to be sure, are preaching Christ even from envy and strife. But some also from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am appointed for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition rather than from pure motives, thinking to cause me distress in my imprisonment. What then? What do I do with this, Paul says? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in this I rejoice. Hallelujah. If the church down the street is proclaiming the Lordship of Jesus Christ, hallelujah. Praise God. Pray for Him. If a church is denying, however, the Lordship of Jesus Christ, well, that's a different story. Okay, back to Luke, chapter 9. Quickly. You're going, are we doing chapter 10? Just hang with me. Luke 9.51 When the days were approaching for His ascension, He was determined to go to Jerusalem. And this is another turning point. In fact, this is a pivotal moment as well. That word determined, sterizo, in the, in the Greek, does not talk about a hi-fi system. Sterizo means to set firm. He was firm in His determination here to go to Jerusalem. This is the point at which Jesus began His march to the cross. Luke 9.51, mark it down in your Bibles. At this point, Jesus stops all other preparation, all other direction, all other ministry, and He says, from here on out, I'm going to the cross. And this is the moment. He was determined to go that way. Listen quickly as the Spirit of Christ speaks this truth through Isaiah. I'll just read this to you. Isaiah chapter 50, verse 4. This is the third servant song in Isaiah. The Lord God has given me the tongue of disciples that I may know how to sustain the weary one with a word. This is the Spirit of Christ speaking, gang. He awakens me morning by morning. He awakens my ear to listen as a disciple. The Lord God has opened my ear and I was not disobedient, nor did I turn back. I gave my back to those who strike me and my cheeks to those who pluck out the beard. I did not cover my face from humiliation and spitting. For the Lord God helps me. Therefore I am not disgraced. Therefore, listen, therefore I have set my face like flint. 
And I know that I will not be ashamed. That's what's happening in Luke 9.51. He was determined to go to Jerusalem. He set his face like flint, and off Jesus goes. Verse 52. And he sent messengers on ahead of him, and they went and entered the village of the Samaritans to make arrangements for him, but they did not receive him because he was traveling on toward Jerusalem. When his disciples, James and John, saw this, they said, Lord, do you want us to command fire to come down from heaven and consume them? <laughs> but he returned, he turned and rebuked them, and he said, You do not know what kind of spirit you are of. I've said that kind of thing to my kids. What is coming out of your mouth? Who are you? And what have you done with my son? You don't know what kind of spirit you're of, for the Son of Man did not come to destroy men's lives, but to save them. Jesus is upending wrong thinking right and left. He's correcting them right and left. And it says they went on to another village. This is so funny to me. Mark chapter 3, verse 17 tells us that Jesus gave James and John the name Boanerges, which means sons of thunder. Why? Because they wanted to call down fire from heaven and destroy villages. Because that guy's not with us, so I told him to shut up and stop speaking in your name, Lord. John, James, come on, boys. There are a couple of hotheads. You know what's marvelous about James and John? Both of these brothers would be so altered by their relationship with Jesus Christ that James would be the first apostle martyred like Jesus. Acts chapter 12, verse 2 tells us. John was so prepared to be like Jesus that as the last apostle living, he would become known as not a son of thunder any longer, but the disciple of love. Because Jesus gets in and He changes us. But again, in these stories, we have all 12 apostles, and they're arguing about their own greatness, and they're attempting to shut down the use of the name of Jesus, and they're asking for a nuclear blast on an inhospitable town, and they're missing the entire heart of the gospel. They are missing the message. It is not a religion. It is a person. And they're still thinking religiously. And they're still thinking in terms of overthrow and and government and not thinking about Jesus and relationship. Well, Jesus upended that. And for us, the only way to avoid wrong thinking today is to keep our eyes fixed on Jesus. Verse 57, as they were going along the road, someone said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, The foxes have holes and the birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay His head. Translation, it's not an easy road. Better think about what you're saying. And He said to another, Follow Me! But He said, Lord, permit Me first to go and bury My Father. But He said to him, Allow the dead to bury their own dead. But as for you, go and proclaim everywhere the kingdom of God. Now Jesus is not being rude here. Chances are this guy's father is not yet dead. And he's saying, you know, when, when, when this is all taken care of, and, and when I bury my father, then I'll be free to come and follow you. And then, then Jesus, I'll follow you. And he says, no, 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 no. You follow me now or never. Don't put it off. What are you putting it off for? Another said, I will follow you, Lord, but first permit me to go say goodbye to those at home. And Jesus said, no one, after putting his hand to the plow and looking back, is fit for the kingdom of God. And in each one of these instances, what Jesus was looking at was not what they were saying. He was looking at their hearts. 
and their hearts were trying to come up with excuses for not following. And so Jesus just slowly, one by one, removes the excuses and says that's all they are. They're just excuses. Now, chapter 10. We already covered the first 20 verses, so we're way deep into chapter 10. In this moment, the first 20 verses, the sending of the 70, when they came back, remember Sunday morning, pumped up, and the power of their awesome win over Denver, I mean the demons. (laughs) Verse 20 says, Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to to you, but rejoice that your names are recorded in heaven. And at that very time, He, that is Jesus, rejoiced greatly in the Holy Spirit. And He said, I praise You, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that You have hidden these things from the wise and intelligent and have revealed them to infants. Yes, Father, for this way was well-pleasing in Your sight. All things have been handed over to Me by My Father. And no one knows the Son except the Father, and who the Father is except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son wills to reveal Him. I love this. Jesus is now pumped up. They're pumped up. He's pumped up. Everybody's excited. Verse 24, turning to the disciples, He said privately, Blessed are the eyes which see the things you see. For I say to you, many prophets and kings wished to see the things which you see and did not see them. And to hear the things which you hear and did not hear them. By the way, there's a greater blessing than that. Blessed is he who believes and has not seen. And that's your blessing. And my blessing. No, I wasn't there. I didn't get to see all that we're talking about tonight. But I believe. And there's a beautiful blessing that comes with it. What is Jesus rejoicing in here? It's very simple. Number nine, if you're keeping up with all of these things, Jesus commends revelation by relationship. He commends revelation by relationship. Again, it's back to relationship. That's all that matters to Jesus. And what He's saying here is the revelation of God comes in the relationship we have with Jesus. That the more I know Jesus, the more I know God. The more I walk with Jesus, the more God is revealed to me. Because it's in relationship that I get revelation. John 17.26 Jesus said, I have made your name known to them and will make it known so that the love which you, with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. Relationship, relationship, relationship. Verse 25. And a lawyer stood up and put him to the test saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And he said to him, What's written in the law? How does it read to you? And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, You have answered correctly. Do this, and you will live. Relationship, relationship, relationship. But wishing to justify himself, he said to Jesus, And who is my neighbor? And Jesus replied, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell among the robbers, and they stripped him and beat him and went away, leaving him half dead. And by chance, a priest was going down on that road. And when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. Likewise, a Levite also. And when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. Might a priest or a Levite have a good reason for walking on by a dead man? Oh yeah. Yeah. Touch a dead man and you're unclean. 
They're coming down from Jerusalem, and who knows what business they're attending to. Now, granted, this is just a story of Jesus, it's a parable, but you could make a good excuse for them to walk on by. In fact, there are any number of really excellent excuses for not stopping and helping this guy. The robbers could still be in the rocks hiding around. You need to get on by. Get out of there. This guy's dead anyway. And Charles Spurgeon said, I never knew a man refuse to help the poor who failed to give at least one admirable excuse. Verse 33. But a Samaritan who was on a journey came upon him. And when he saw him, he felt compassion and came to him and bandaged up his wounds, pouring oil and wine on them. And he put them, put him on his own beast and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And on the next day, he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper and said, Take care of him. And whatever more you spend, when I return, I will repay you. Which of these three do you think proved to be the neighbor to the man who fell into the robber's hands? And he said, that is, the lawyer, the one who showed mercy toward him. And Jesus said to him, Go and do the same. I don't have to explain this parable because it is not one of the mysterious ones. It is one of the most plain and simple parables of Jesus. And what it speaks of in the most simple terms is how the mercy of God looks in practical life. You want to act out the mercy of God, you treat everyone as your neighbor. And it doesn't matter who they are. It doesn't matter if they're a stinking, half-blood Samaritan. Jews hated the Samaritans. The Samaritans hated the Jews. They had nothing to do. They would go way out of their way on a journey not to walk through Samaritan territory. And as I told you Sunday, when they did walk through a Samaritan town or have to do business there, the Jew would get to the edge of town and take off their sandals and shake the dust off their feet and then continue on their way. They hated the Samaritans. And Jesus beautifully picks a Samaritan to be the picture of the mercy of God. The Samaritan is the one who cares about this poor Jewish man who's been beaten up, not his Jewish brothers. And I hate this, but i got to say it to you. It's been said, you only love God as much as the person you love the least. <sighs> because all of a sudden, the list of people that I don't like as much as other people, you... I love you guys. (laughs) But there's that list over there. And I look at that list and I go, wait, you're telling me that my love for Jesus is only as great as for that guy? For her? For them? The disciple of love wrote in 1 John 4.20, if someone says, I love God and hates his brother, he's a liar. For the one who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him that the one who loves God should love his brother also. That is, I believe, in the most simple of parables, one of the hardest things to grasp. How do I love the neighbor that is so hard to love? Spurgeon said, Let it never be forgotten that what the law demands of us, the gospel really produces in us. It's the gospel. 
The more I learn to love God, the more I love my neighbor. And the more I love my neighbor, the more I learn to love God. It's a cyclical thing, and it all has to do with love and relationship, relationship, relationship. Jim, you should like this. (laughs) Jim is my brother of relationship. I love that. Every time I get together with Jim, this is what's on his heart. Hey, Rick, when can we get together again? Jim, we just got together right now. I know, but when can we get together again? Why? Because Jim gets it. It's about relationship, not religion. We're not a religious organization. We're a fellowship. who are called to love each other and love our God. Well, I love God. Loving my neighbor, discipleship, man, it just really messes up my selfishness. Verse 38, we're almost done. Now as they were traveling along, he entered a village. And a woman named Martha welcomed him into her home. She had a sister called Mary, who was seated at the Lord's feet, listening to his word. But Martha was distracted, note this, with all her what? Preparations. What do we start with tonight? Preparation. We are in preparation. Preparation for the kingdom, man. That's what our lives are about. Jesus is preparing us for that great day. It's all preparations. Martha is in the middle of all her preparations and she's distracted by Him. And she came up to Him and said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to do all the serving alone? Then tell her to help me. But the Lord answered and said to her, Martha, Martha, you are worried and bothered about so many things, but only one thing is necessary. For Mary has chosen the good part which shall not be taken away from her. Tenth and final note, Jesus defends sitting over serving. Jesus defends sitting over serving. We end with two disciples. We started with twelve, right? Then we saw the seventy. We see Jesus extending His ministry. We see Him preparing the disciples as we go. And now we come down to just two disciples, two sisters, both who loved the Lord. And don't miss that. Martha loved Jesus. That's why she was working so hard. She loved Him desperately. She wanted everything to be perfect. The meal, the house. She's she's busy about it. To please the Lord. Because she loved Him. Mary loved the Lord. She's just sitting at His feet. In awe, listening to every word drop from His lips. But Martha was distracted from Jesus while Mary was devoted to Jesus. And please don't miss this tonight. That is the difference between a disciple who's stressed and a disciple at rest. The disciple, the lover of Jesus, whose life is stressed out and tense, is the one who is trying to work the love. Make it happen. Busy, busy, busy. Ministry, ministry, ministry. Doing, doing, doing. And stress comes, and it's all distraction from the relationship to which we are called. Mary, she's seated at Jesus' feet, listening to His Word. Martha, serving like crazy, looking after all of her preparations. And I ask you tonight, which of the two is going to be the most prepared? And the obvious answer is Mary. And how is Mary so prepared? Because she rested at Jesus' feet. In essence, Mary shod her feet with the Gospel 
with the preparation of the gospel of peace. And so Jesus said, Mary has chosen the good part which shall not be taken away from her. You know, God could take this church away from me in a heartbeat. He could cause something to happen and I'm gone. God could take all of the work of ten years, all of my labor, and it could be gone like that. And Jesus would say to you as He has said to me this week, Rick, I want you to have what nobody can take away. And that's me. It's all about relationship. That's the preparation of the Gospel. And Lord, that is what I pray we hear, I pray we walk in, I pray this fellowship knows is relationship with You that we throw out all of the restrictions and the legalism and the limitations of religion in favor of walking in a love relationship with You. In favor of discipleship. And we recognize, Lord, we accept all of the conditions, the terms, the things that will happen that that are a result of following You. Okay, Lord, that's fine as long as I can be with You. And I pray for Your grace in relationship. And Lord, that You would shod our feet with the preparation of the Gospel of peace. In Jesus' name, Amen.